Well, hello there. You look fantastic. You really, truly do. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast, and my name is, as always, Jeff Watson. That is indeed who I am. And as always, I am also your gracious and your grateful host, and especially grateful for this particular episode, ladies and gentlemen. So my friend Michael Lee Simpson and I, who's the producer of this little shindig, he and I started this about six months ago. Um, he has a bunch of contacts in the Hollywood industry because he's an incredible writer for like Variety uh, backstage, and he's also a screenwriter in his own right, and etc. I love the guy. And he starts, he's been throwing me these incredibly brilliant Hollywood people, um, screenwriters and producers and directors, and just not so much Hollywood people really, but just artists, like really true artists. And that has been an incredible walk for me. I get to learn so much from these people. I get to be the eternal student that I tried to be. And it's been just an, an incredible experience. And we have gone into other, a little over, kind of like not quite Hollywood, actually not, not at all Hollywood. We've done a couple of, uh, I've, been, I've been grateful to do a couple of interviews with some neuroscientists and then one about a, a addiction with a rabbi. And they're starting to go all, all over the place and I'm, I'm enjoying that a, a lot. So this next episode is with a woman named Lelai Hayslip. And she is an incredible woman. My God, what an honor it was to have this conversation with this just powerful woman. She's a Vietnamese-American writer. She is a memoirist, and she's a humanitarian. And what that really means is, the story is, when she was a young girl she in Vietnam in a small village, right before the war started or during the war, the American helicopters land in. And so the, the occupation begins and the war begins. And then she ends up in a Vietnamese quote unquote reeducation camp um, with the North Vietnamese and she's tortured and it's horrific and she escapes and she goes to Saigon. And then she meets a man who is a serviceman named Ed Monroe. They fall in love. She travels back to San Diego to start her new life there. And when she came back to Vietnam in 1986 to go visit, she noticed that the entire country was just demolished from the war. So she decided to start up a foundation and work with clean water. And she really got active in trying to change things. So she also decided to write a novel, write a memoir, really. And it was called When Heaven and Earth Traded Places about her experience. It was the first time that a Vietnamese woman, especially a peasant woman, had really given her view on what, what actually happened there. That turned into a movie with Oliver, made by Oliver Stone, Tommy Lee Jones as Ed Monroe. And it, it's a magical film, magical film. So she's an absolute warrior, this lady, just a complete badass. Usually on these interviews, I, you know, I go back and I listen to them. I'm like talking a lot and I'm doing my shtick and I'm like, yeah, hey, it's kind of funny. Check this out. Not this one, folks. I am dead quiet the whole time. This is a shocker for me because everything this woman said was so powerful to me that I cried twice during the interview, which I admitted to her at the end of this thing. Unbelievably powerful. I cannot, I cannot underline how incredibly wonderful this was for me to experience this. And I also mentioned too, I uh, went to. Uh, I'm fortunate to go to Cambodia to work at an orphanage about eight years ago, and that changed my entire life because I understood service work and I, I saw these kids who had nothing and they were happy. Um, we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about Buddhism. I mean, it was like a, one for the ages, folks. So. I honestly, I say this all the time, like, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did making it, but 
this one has gravity, folks. This one has a lot of power and gravity and forgiveness in it. It's incredible the things this woman says. I truly, truly hope that you actually do get as much out of this interview as I did making it. That's the key. Enjoy. I did. Bye. Well, hello yet again, everyone who is listening to the sound of my voice. There's another voice that's going to join us in about two seconds, and that is the incredible honor that I have to speak to, Laylee Hayslip. Say hello, please, Laylee, to the gathered audience. Well, good morning, Jeff and everyone. It's a beautiful day here in San Diego, and I hope wherever you are, you have a great day today. What a wonderful beginning to the show already. So I wanted to kind of do things a little differently. Uh, Usually I ask a series of questions and I'll be getting into them in a second. But I wanted to tell you something interesting. So I remember when I was younger that my family, so my family is from San Jose, California, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a big Vietnamese community, as I know you know. Yes. And when I was younger, my mom um, was a teacher for... Uh, English uh, for different communities, volunteer. Mm -hmm. And she befriended this family, Kui and Ting Ha, and uh, their five children, who were boat people, and they had come over from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And their story was horrifying. And I remember vividly hearing some of these stories. They would come over to the home sometimes for Thanksgiving when I was younger. And it made an incredible impression on me. So last night, in preparation for this interview, I asked my mom details about their story, and it was a horrifying and inspiring story. The father, Kui, was in the re-education camps, quote-unquote re-education, and uh, escaped and then brought his family over uh, in the boat, lost his son because the motor apparently blew out and the son burned at five children. They had to bury him at sea, came to America came to San Jose and built a community. They were, both of them actually, Kui apparently was a professor over in Vietnam and Ting Ha was a teacher in Vietnam. And they worked their way up. They learned the language. There were a lot of cultural barriers, as you understand, especially in the 80s as well. So I just wanted to thank you, to be honest with you, because this conversation that we're having now triggered that conversation I had with my mom last night. And I got to learn more about that entire world. And it reminded me because I loved the, I loved that family, the FOM, so much. Mm. So I'm incredibly aware of, uh, as, as much as I can be, of, of, of that world and kind of what happened there. So with that in mind, my first question, honestly, is because you've, you've, you've told your story so beautifully in two of those books, um, when, uh, when Heaven and Earth Traded Places and Child of War and Woman of Peace. And the first question I have is, what inspired you to tell your story? And did you have any fears in telling it, and specifically for people back home? Was there any fears there? Um, In Vietnamese cultures, uh, anything that good, we show. And anything that bad, we hide. So we call it South Chair. So a bad thing happened, you're not supposed to talk about it. 
at it get a pop of life and you only share something that exciting and good and something that you know is um make uh, people motivated to do things but in my case uh, because i came here in 1970 and um been in widow twice and raised uh, three sons uh, at a single mother and in 1975 uh, when the war was over uh, i also uh, took in 17 different uh, I mean, 17 boys, they own from Vietnam and um, for five years. And so I share a lot um, with my family or my children and the foster children um, about our history and our um, war and our story. And so in 1986, I went back to Vietnam and I saw what happened there Um after the war in 1975, uh, U.S. embargoes again Vietnam another 20 years until 1994. And so before uh, what lived is by the U.S. government. Uh, therefore, I have to do something. I had to write the book. I have to share this story, what we went through. Um, I have to think of the way how we can help rebuild Vietnam after the war. And I mean, all those things. So in my case, it's a little different than most uh, average Vietnamese. Uh, we did not want to talk about what happened to us. But like I say, I've been here back in 1970 and um, I returned in 1986. Um, it, it, I cannot keep all that within me anymore. I have to share. But um, answer your question, um, how and why I started the first play was I came here in 1970 at a 20 years old girl and mother of two. And my husband is much older than me. And he brought me into here in San Diego with the family that everybody in Navy, his two sons in Navy, his sister-in-law, I mean, his brother-in-law was in Navy. Uh, all of his family is a World War II veteran and um, Navy when in Vietnam era. So when I walk into this family without knowing any background about American involvement in Vietnam, and they're looking at me, you know, in San Diego, it, you know, everybody, almost every family is involved in Navy. So when we live in a Navy community and most of the men were served in the Nan in Vietnam, that's where I came from. And they look at me that everything is my fault, you know, and when the American was wounded or killed, and they put in a bag and bring them on airplane. Uh, my family's, uh, my husband's family look at me and say, what a shame, what a shame that you kill our people. And then every time the Vietnamese villages burning up, women and children crying and killed and wounded and the whole village destroyed by bomb and gun. And they look at me and they say, oh, what a shame that your people killing each other. Why, why you like war so much? Now look at them. I have no English to tell them what happened. I could not express myself how I feel about um, the war. I cannot share with them how I end up it here and what it my family and my country is all about. Because what they see is only their point of view. What is a Vietnamese like myself 
come from a farm. We are farmer. We are plant rice and we harvest vegetable. We see a different point of view. And of course, people in the South who run the government also see a different point of view. But nobody asks about how do you feel about the war or how do you see the war? They own a claim on me. And therefore, I say, okay, let's, I told myself, I told myself, let me tell you who we are and what we went through and why that we hate the war so much, not love it, but hate it. Mm. And so I took a lot of notes and I tried to find the answer, but I had no answer, only question that they're asking and they want to know and I have no answer. And so little by little, it's a lot of note taking and I just feel so pressed down with inside of me that these people know nothing about our war know nothing about our culture and our tradition and our land and how much we love our fatherland and, you know, our mother earth. And they know nothing. And here, everything is on Vietnamese bad. They look at us like a monkey live in a tree. They look at us, it just, you know, very poorly. Of course we poor because we just went through 100 years war against the French. Yeah. And the American come right in, follow the same route, same yep. footsteps. And we went through so much problem. And the world did not understand what the Vietnamese, we people too. We're not born and we're not acting for the war. The mm. war came to us, we had to fight. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, um, that is how the book started way back in 1970, that when I first came. But, you know, with the young children and my husband passed away and I might uh, live in by house, you know, do house cleaning, $2.50 per hour, babysit for 50 cents per hour just to survive. But when I have a chance, I let the public, the American people and the world know what we went through, how did we fought the war and why did we love our motherland so much that we will die between three to five millions people so that we can have independence and freedom so that people can work on the land. And I think that's absolutely, of course, wonderful. What I'm curious is you've been saying the last few sentences, or the last uh, baby paragraph or so, you keep saying that I had to tell the story. I had to. You used that, I think, twice. Why did you have to? What was, why... What was it about you that wanted to do this? Because Americans came to Vietnam, okay, talking about the servicemen and, you know, uh, politics, came to Vietnam for one tour of duty or two tours of duty and come back and write about the Vietnam. Yeah, he can write about the war and he can write about his experience in Vietnam and he can talk about what the Vietnamese people are like. And, but how much did he know about our culture? We have 5,000 year culture. Mm-hmm. And what did he know about how much we love our motherland that we have to die to save her? And so therefore nobody do it because some people want to do it and they don't, you know, they have a different point of view. They have a different outlook and whatever spirit that they have, they want to share. My is different. I uneducated farmer. 
I'm just a water buffalo girl. I'm the youngest of daughter of six children born in the family, a revolutionary family. We fought with the notes and again, the friends and again, the U.S. Wow. And therefore, I have my own point of view and I have my own belief. And therefore, because I'm uneducated, I can tell the story just from the heart, what I went through, what I witnessed. And what I saw and what my village people experienced through the friends and through the American war. And I, think, I had to write the books. Of course. And I think that comes through so well. The wonderful thing about this is that, as you mentioned, it's the perspective and it's that female perspective, the peasant girl perspective on the war that I think resonated with so many people because you're right. The stories were traditionally men, servicemen, men, men, men. And to have that kind of perspective that you brought to the table is just absolutely, is clearly so important and absolutely so magical. What I'm curious is, so after knowing some of the stories, at least from the family that I mentioned, and there was a quote actually that I read that I thought was so great. It was a book review on heaven and earth from the Washington Post. And it said, to Americans, almost always, the peasants of the Vietnam uh, culture were part of the scenery of the war no more. Yep. And the fact that you were able to bring that vision to the page, I just absolutely blown away. The one thing that I did also realize is that in kind of really looking this up, that as a new therapist or working uh, therapist to be one, at least, that I am, I understand trauma and I work with trauma a lot. And I realized that the entire country was under mass trauma. Every person almost, perhaps all of them were under mass trauma. And what does that do to a nation? <laughs> well, you're talking about my trauma. Yes. My mother trauma. It come, I, come, I had nothing. I had no trauma. I had perfectly good life. I had no regret. I had nothing that I can complain about. However, my mother was born in 1908, and she passed away in 2006. That means 102 years old. She went through, you know how many war? The French, the Japanese, the American, and so on. Now, that is the person who you can call went through trauma. I born in 1949, but late 1950, I mean, early 1950. And so I left my uh, village when I was 14 to big city, Saigon. And I left my country when I was 20, come to United States. So what trauma when I went through? What I went through in torture camp or what I went through in jail or what I went through in whatever that you, see in the read in the book and see in the movie, that is just like almost every woman, that a Vietnamese woman in the village went through every day, every night, for how many years on their life. So I cannot say, oh, I went through so much. The world owe me something. No, I owe the world a lot. But the world owe me nothing. 
because I am as an individual human being, I'm born here just to be a wife, to be a mother, be a good global citizen, giving back what I can, support my family and my neighbor and my city and my country if I can. And so, you know, let's just talk about trauma. Yes, many people, you're like both people you mentioned, you're like refugee you mentioned, you're like Vietnam after 1975. Yes, they went through trauma. That is true. Every Vietnamese had a story to tell, to share, and to write about it. But because of first generation come here, have to take care of the children. Second generation, now they're well-educated and they have a, a, a good living and everything in life. They maybe can share more and can write more. Then tell their parents and grandparents about their trauma. And that is what we all went through and we all overcome it and we all end up a good life because we let it go. We cannot carry with us. And so as it comes, like big storm come, you have to put up with it. And then the next day it will be night. That is what we all were looking for the next day for the better future, for a good weather will come after a big storm. So that is what we all were looking for. You just mentioned how do you let it go? Or you mentioned that you let it go. How do you do that? Because number one, you're too busy to thinking about something. <laughs> yeah, that makes okay. sense. <laughs> and number two, nothing can be better than we're here. We're in America. You live here, you're taken for granted. You live here, you have everything. It served you, uh, pamper you, a good life. You abuse it. We come from a background that we are hardworking people. We're willing to obey Father and Sky, Mother Earth. We have to worship them. We have to work with them. We have to uh, uh, honor them so that we can live day by day. You over here, you have everything. So when a little thing comes or a big thing comes, you call it crisis. We don't call that a crisis. It's part of life. And so when you come to country like Vietnam or Cambodia or Laos or any other country around the world, you come here, you say, wow, what an opportunity. My children can go to school. I go to store open 24 hours a day. Nobody put a gun in my head and tell me have to do this or that or I would be dead. None of that. So why? So why did you have that problem? Why did you complain? Why did you don't, you say, it life is too hard. You can't overcome. And you go take drugs and you take alcohol. That's not part of life. Part of life is deal with it. Heal it. Move on. Start a new day. New chapter. Do a new thing. And that is what Vietnamese refugee, both people who came here, even though it's a short of time, they're very successful on everything they do. Yeah, I had that lesson, uh, as I mentioned earlier, before we were recording. Um, I went through some trauma, and to get my head cleared, I went to uh, Phnom Penh to work at an orphanage in the middle of a jungle somewhere. 
And I, it was unbelievable. It was an experience. It was a masterclass, like a PhD in gratitude for me mm-hmm. because these kids had nothing, you know, right. their families were beheaded by the local military it, right in front of them. And yet it was about, I'd say 40 kids in this little tiny, tiny, tiny church in the jungle. And they were spiritually dead centered. These kids, I will never forget it. They were playing with deflated soccer balls and eating rice and fish. Like it was a steak dinner, <laughs> you know, and, and to watch those children be so just live in constant gratitude. And, you know, perhaps that was the only world they knew, but it doesn't matter. They were so, so present with me the whole time. And that, really made a massive impact on me. Yeah. So 1988, I took many, many groups back to Vietnam. Most of family, uh, veterans, and, you know, whoever want to come with me. And so every year we organize a pilgrimage to take them to Vietnam. And almost every person in our group who go back there for the first time or go travel there in, in, in first time, um, they always ask, how come these children, they had nothing, and yet they're so happy? And because they're happy, because they don't have much to worry about. <laughs> and so, you know, when you have nothing to worry, you get happy with what you get. So they're happy. And second question that, how can the people forgiven out what we did to them in front of the war, and now there's so much you know, loving and compassion and invite us into their house and treat us just like a long lost brother. How can they do that? Oh, well, we're human. We're in one family of mankind. Maybe we had a different skin. We had different culture. We speak different language, but we all are same. We want love. We want compassion. We want to be careful. And we want to be friendly with one another. The war is between the government and government. If you don't kill me, I'll kill you. But now the war is over. We just like brother and sister. That's why Vietnamese, we refer to everybody as brother or sister. Really? Uncle or auntie. Nephew or nieces. Our ancestor. It's only at once. They die, they reborn into us. And so everybody is recycling. And so how can we divide? We cannot divide human beings. We are in the same family. Everybody have the same needs, have the same ones, and have the same gratitude of life. And if you know that, and you will be a very happy, just like children in Cambodia or in Vietnam. And... That is something that I I absolutely love because you talked about this earlier, just idea of storytelling. And I heard it say that the shortest distance between two people is a story. And I believe I'm a huge whole podcast is about storytelling at the end of the day, like you are doing now. And when we do share our stories, it, it illuminates the fact that we're all interconnected because we can always relate to a story. Regardless of, even if the details don't necessarily relate, the overall themes of abandonment, loss, joy, love, family, whatever that looks like, I think it's just absolutely critical. And I love the fact that you said that every person has a story. I absolutely love that. 
And I try to encourage people in my work to have people tell their stories. But I got to take a, take a step back. You had said that your culture believes that the ancestors live in you. Yes. Oh. Where do you think you came from? From <laughs> under the ground? You pop it up just like a tree? <laughs> no. No. You have to have somebody before your parent, before your great-great-grandparent, and you will have many more after you. And it's just recycling, and that's what you call reincarnation, and that's what we believe in Buddhist, and that is what Buddha thought, uh, that's what he found when he become enlightened. And so if you believe in that, you say, oh, I cannot treat my mother bad because after she dies, she may be come back and be my sons. Or I cannot treat my neighbor wrongly because after he dies, he gonna be maybe my grandfather or me, my uh, grandkid. Then what I'm going to do, you know? So you, after you know that, then you respect everybody above you and everyone after you. Because it's the same soul, it gets re- coming back to be who they are and whatever the mission that they come to do. And the best way is to just leave them alone, let them do their thing so that they can pay back their karma, do your thing. Everybody has the right, everybody have the same equals in a womb, born to a mother and taken care through their parent and they grow up. They become a parent themselves, and they become grandparents, and then they die, and then they come back to young children again. It gets like the four season: winter fall off the leaf, spring come out with new trees, fall again the leaf, and the winter they die off. No different. So if you respect the weather, you respect four different directions in the world, it not south west. You also respect four different races. Yellow is us, white is you, black is black, and red is red. No different. We have to understand that to live and survive and save this planet, we have to accept those things. Yes, that we are all interconnected, every one of us. Yes, you cannot breathe without air. Who in this world, what kind of plant or animal can live without the air, water, food? Tell me, tell me one little thing. None. (laughs) Yeah. So just say, how can I say, I hate you because you breathe my air? And you love me because I don't share you my air? I mean, come on. Yeah. Right? But anyway, you know, talking about taking people to Vietnam or you volunteer in Cambodia, that's what I've been doing. I also have an office in Vietnam that will be 30 years next year. Wow. Congratulations. We're going to go there to celebrate. And I have 1,007 children who call me mom. No, really? How (laughs) wonderful. Oh, my God. Yes. So there are a lot of work to do still, you know. Do as much that you can, because otherwise you have to come back and redo it again until you do everything right. Yeah, I believe that. (laughs) So I hear the term humanitarian a lot, and it's been applied to you for just reasons. Can you tell me what that is to you? What does that mean exactly? When I was growing up in a village, if 
my mother and father go out and get a big fish in a pond. The first thing first is to worship our ancestor and say thank you and worship our mother earth and the pond that we get it from and say thank you. The second that we take the nice piece of meat to give it to our neighbor or our uncle or our grandparent if they live nearby. And then the third is we give it to you know our parents before children can eat the bone. Okay. So growing up, everything that we harvest from the rice to sweet potato to whatever, the best part of thing you will share with your neighbor. First, you share to ancestor, to their soul and thank them. But then you can call it heavenly father or mother or whoever you call. You put out there and make an offer, burn three incense and say, thank you. Thank you for harvesting this. Thank you for beautiful weather. Thank you for a beautiful sunshine and raining or whatever that you provide so we can harvest that food. That it must, right? After that, then you share, oh, my neighbor, little bit there, my auntie, my uncle, but then whatever life we eat. So it's already within ourselves that we share what we harvest. Coming to this country, yeah, even though I'm just a house cleaning and take care of my three kids, but I still volunteer when I can. I still uh, give when I can. Until I become widows and I have three kids and I also take care of many foster children who mm-hmm. come from Vietnam with no no parents. Then 1986, I'm doing very well for myself. I own a restaurant. I own five houses. Wow. And I doing good here in San Diego. But I feel very empty. The more I get, the emptiness I become. Yes. Because the press. I have so many bills to pay. I have to deal with my staff. I have to deal with Uncle Sam every three months. I mean, think about it. <laughs> Pressure that you have with you every day if you live here in California. Yeah. And so 1986, it just something inside of me say I must go back to find my mother before she died because by that time she like 70 years old. And so, you know, uh, between U.S. and Vietnam had no diplomat and the embargo and in my passport to say that U.S. citizens cannot visit country with communists like Vietnam or Cuba or Russian and all of those countries. Mm-hmm. And my question is, who give that law? It who come up with that law? When they come to us, have a war, nobody asks us, that can they come? And nobody asks or tell us what is the commonest and what is non-commonest, what is all about. Now I just want to go see my mom and why that I have this such optical. But I went. Long story, make it short, I went to Vietnam. When I get there, within five cents, people can survive a day. With a dollar, they can survive a week. Here, I own a restaurant that seek 120 people every day. And the food that I throw away Mm. and the thing that I waste and own the complaint, (coughs) that food too cold, it's not good enough, it's too hot. You give me a wrong 
order, whatever. I just say, you know what? If I can take all this energy and all the money that I serve or I collect or I receive or I spend, I take that to help the poor people in Vietnam, they will be appreciated much more. And they will survive for a long time. Until now, here it goes to the trash can and go to garbage. Because if uh, if a health department came and if they check out the temperature, it's not right, or they think it's something it's not good for public, they just dump that in the trash can. It doesn't matter, $100 or $500 for lunch, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I say, wow, you know, what a difference. So first thing first, I get rid of the restaurant. I get rid of the biggest house and another beach house and beach house. And I move down here, a small one house up in a hill. My children have to still in school. And then I just say, okay, I have to concentrate on writing these books. And it makes me happy. I have nothing But it makes me happy. And the more I do that, the more give back I uh, did. And the more I support the U.S. Vietnam veteran. I work with many, many different groups of veterans, especially veterans for peace. Mm-hmm. I work with them and work with them. They volunteer working with me. We had a good, good relationship. And we traveled to Vietnam together and we start to build a project and dig the well and build the school and clean it and set up rehab centers and we set up orphanage and street children. I mean, that's it what life's supposed to be. Yes. Yes. The more I give, the more I'm happy. Yes. The more I feel, but I reach inside. Yes. And that's it why I keep been doing that for 40 years. I had a restaurant for about a year. I get out. I had import export business. I get out. I had a license for real estate. I get out. I had a supermarket long time ago, way back in 1990. I let that go. Nothing lasts me more than three years. But mm. the non, okay, I work for humanitarian relief work in many different countries. And I say, I am born to do hmm. because I am so happy hmm. and I can give whatever I have for them to those young children, to those people. I have no regret because I cannot take it with me. I cannot take it with me. I can't even move from one house to next house because it's too much. I call it junk. But to them, it's a lot. A lot. Get an old clothes, an old pencil, an old notebook. That is what kept me going for 40 years, and I'm still doing it. And I want everyone to say, oh, I am boring. Please go out and serve for humanity. Yes. And somebody say, oh, I have nothing to do, and I don't have any life puppet. That is your choice. True. That is everyone's choice. True. And so if you want to make a purpose of life and life live on legacy, do something. And people say, oh, money never can buy happiness. Hey, can let you know that my $10, $100 or $1,000 to the third world country 
that is my happiness. Yes. So money can it. buy happiness. Yeah, that money can buy happiness. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Yes. So I want to. So you're obviously discussing the East Meets West Foundation and a little bit of the. I guess later that became the Global Village Foundation. Correct. Yeah, the East Meet West Foundation is just too big. Back at that time, like two uh, thousand, huh? and it you know when uh, you have a goal, right? When you set something and you say, "Oh, I will be happy if I can get build a one school or one clinic," but when you able to build many general hospital and university and school, and you can take care the, the many countries. You know, why not just let it go? It it, it complete what you set up to do. And if it when it come too much, you know the kitchen is too hot, you get out. So that's what I did. It's too much money, it come in too fast, it come in the powders, struggle, everybody one piece of it. I say you can have it. I go out and I found a second one so I can continue to work in a red root level on volunteer. I don't get paid. I don't take anything to the found, from the foundation. I live it a very humble life and everything I do, I pay my way. That is how my doing serve it for humanity like a Buddha monk would do. Yes. That's all you need. Yes. You have a lot of friends. If you need to uh, stay overnight, yeah, they tell you. I have room for you. I, I call myself a first-class homeless. And I can serve for humanity. And I am still do that until the day I die. Because that is what brings me happiness. Bring me joy. And I look back and I say, oh, that's what I did. Okay, that's good enough. But no, never enough for me. I still continue to do because it's so much it needs to do. It's right here in my community, in Escondido, San Diego, California. A lot of refugees, a lot of my immigrants, a lot of children in another side of the border that need help. We able can do. You don't say, have to go to Vietnam or go to India or go to Middle East or Central America. You can do it right here in your neighborhood. Why not? The beautiful weather. You have more than you need around the house. Just pick up something and go out and start to donate to homeless, to people who are able to can eat but have no food. Children have no meal. I mean, there are many ways. And that is where your happiness comes. Because it comes from within. Yes. The happiness and joy, it comes from within you. Yes, I have often said that happiness I usually say it this way, and you may agree or disagree, but you can't find happiness. Stop searching. Happiness is a byproduct of doing good works and finding meaning in your life. And therefore, happiness finds you. We've been doing it all wrong. We do it all wrong in this country, I believe. I know, right? You know, I've been widowed since 1983, and I'm only 20, 32 years old. And... Uh, people say, why don't you find someone and, and remarry again? And I say, well, first of all, where can I find that Mr. Right? Where is he? I don't know where to look for him, right? But if I want to be happy with one man or one person, 
and fall in love with somebody that you think it will make you happy, why not fall in love with the whole world oh. and have so many children and young children and any walk of life that you can love them and they love you back? Don't much is much more happier for me. Why I just need looking for one individual? I don't know who that person was or is or will be. I don't know. I right now get happy with the whole world and hope everyone live in peace. Everyone have enough to eat, have clothes on their back. Children can go to school. If they're sick, they have a clinic to go to. They have a health care. They have an herb shop. They have a organic food every day. That all I would ask that how we can help those kind of thing. I cannot thank you enough for doing this show. We are running uh, close to the uh, end of this, but I really want to, first of all, I teared up. I don't do that. I'm not a crier. <laughs> but, you can cry today. I give you permission to okay. cry today because you cry of joy. Yeah. That's exactly what I've been doing this whole time. I, I'm seriously, my eyes are just, just tearing up. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be in the presence of a true Bodhisattva warrior. And I cannot thank you enough for your time. This whole show, this whole podcast is about inspired minds. And I have certainly met the most inspired mind I've met. So thank you for your gift. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And quite frankly, thank you for being a badass. You're a great lady. <laughs> Like God, you know, you're, you're welcome. All welcome. Don't thank me until you travel with me to Vietnam and see how we can work together and bring you joy and happiness. Then you can thank me then. Okay. I would I would be honored. You have no idea how honored I would be. Hey, might. So the way we do this on this show is a little uh little thing at the end, which is now. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye to the audience. You're going to pretend to say goodbye to the audience. I'm going to hang up on them to stop recording. And then we're going to say goodbye for about two seconds officially. Sound good? Yes, very good. Great. Thank you so. Oh, my God. I'm wiping tears. Leela, thank you so much for this interview. My goodness. What an absolute inspiration. I will never forget this conversation as long as I live. I will, re I will listen to it over and over again the way I watch The Godfather, just over and over and over. <laughs> well, thank you for having me and thank you for all my fans out there, all my supporters and all my volunteers to work with me for the last 40 years. Yes. Without you, I could not do it alone. With you, we did a lot, a lot and a lot. And you will see very soon something good coming out so you can see what you have done for Vietnam, for yourself and for the United States. And for every human being that who you touch in your life with. My goodness. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I'm hanging up. Hang tight. Here we go. We're going to pretend to hang up, but I'm going to keep talking to you for a second, right? That's the deal. Okay. Hang yeah, on. Thank you. Here we go. Hang on. Thank you so much. Click. <laughs>